Noteworthy stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future that's often overlooked. The weekly series hosted by me, Loki Karuna, serves up bite-sized stories about the lives and music of artists of color, women, and others from historically underrepresented groups. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artist and catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. Well, hello once again. I'm Loki Karuna, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for joining me here once again. Shout out to the returning listeners. Thank you so much for your continued support. And shout out to the newer folks here. Triloquy is a show built to decolonize classical music. Each week I bring in a story from the field to offer my take on it. I feature an interview with people who are helping expand classical in their own way. And I jump to the weekly Triloquy tour at the end where I ramble about something that I feel is important to share for my crazy little life. For more on the show, to catch up on past opuses and to donate, visit the website, triloquy, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot org. Jorge Federico Osorio joins me this week. He's an acclaimed pianist from Mexico who just put out a new album at age 72, one of our seniors in the struggle for expanding the genre. Looking forward to sharing that here in a bit. In the Triloquy, I'm going to get personal and also vulnerable and address Interracial Dating. Yes, Interracial Dating, a show uh, that I've been watching has me thinking about it. So we'll go there toward the end for a couple of minutes. But for right now, I wanted to take a quick trip over to Cleveland with the story from Van Magazine. Uh, the headline here reads, Inside the Crisis at the Cleveland Institute of Music. All right. First thing I'll say is that this article is about seven days old at the time of my recording this. So uh, if things have changed, things have changed. You'll have to keep up with uh, the update on your own, but I'm going to read just a little bit uh, uh, here as it was published back on the 21st of September. So it says, with conductor Carlos Calmar, the conservatory hoped to become a mecca of orchestral training. After allegations of overwork, bullying, and discrimination, some students are now in open revolt. It says here on September 13th, the Cleveland Institute of Music Orchestra met at Kalus Hall, uh, Kulas Hall, for its first rehearsal of the academic year. But the orchestra didn't play. Instead, a group of student musicians dressed in blue sat silently without their instruments. Many seats were empty. The dozen or so string players who brought their instruments warmed up tentatively. When it came time to tune, the concertmaster stood and smiled sheepishly at the principal oboist. He only shook his head in response. None of the Windsor Brass had brought their instruments. The student demonstration was organized and publicized a few days before the protests uh, to protest the return of conductor Carlos Calmar, Cleveland Institute of Music's director of orchestral studies. Just weeks earlier, Calmar had been cleared in an independently commissioned Title IX investigation. All right. Uh, This article is a little lengthy, so I'll have a link in the description of this so y'all can check it out on your own. But uh, that's basically the gist of it. So Carlos Calmar, who's reasonably famous uh, in the world of conducting and orchestral music, is getting away with something, right? I'm not a alum of the Cleveland Institute of Music. Uh, and while I am friends and associates with uh, a few folks on faculty and staff, 
I have no actual connection to that institution. I'm outlining that right now because from my outside perspective, um, but also from my experience in the field, when musicians protest, especially in a rehearsal, something is wrong. And, you know, I think that's even more so when you're talking about student musicians. No one is trained. We talk about classical training. No one is trained more strictly than a classical musician, maybe someone in the military or something like that. But, you know, when you have musicians who are finding themselves at schools like CIM, this is really just the core of the training and the conditioning um, in this Western view of classical music that prevents typically any of this from happening. But they have come together and done this. Now, I'm sure that there are students who are even risking scholarships and uh, maybe grades and relationships with their support faculty, but they're standing together. And from my perspective, that's really admirable and shines a light on the fact that there must be something that's going on with this conductor at this school. On top of all of that, I fully understand the degree to which conductors <laughs> can get on a person's nerve. I'm going to uh, reach it to my Buddha nature right now and not disparage anyone in particular. But I've had more than challenging moments with conductors over the course of my career so far. Um, and I've just learned to block most of them out. Uh, longtime listeners here know that I've made my position on conductors quite clear. Um, think about all the stories that you've heard or maybe the stories that you haven't heard about conductors who leverage their positions of power for sex uh, to keep secret uh, secrets of uh, things that are nefarious or things they, they shouldn't be doing or, you know, to position uh, themselves to leverage their power um, to just abuse musicians overall, verbally or otherwise. There's all kind of stuff out there if you dig deep enough. If that's happening in the profession, imagine some of these men in front of 19 and 20 year olds and the things that they must be getting away with. Now, I know nothing about Carlos Calmar personally. And again, I've never set foot on CIM's campus, but it's clear that the students have an issue and the institution is trying to cover something up. Now, I want you to take a look at this article and come up with your own ideas. I wonder what you think. Do the students get the benefit of the doubt or should they not? Is there nothing that we should be concerned about? Maybe you think is none of our business. I'll, I'll let you come to your own conclusions. But before I leave this, I want to read just one more thing really quickly for you uh, to consider as you uh, think about this story on your own time. It says here, in April, the school's Title IX coordinator, Vivian Scott, had announced she was investigating Kalmar in an email sent to the entire student body. Scott was subsequently suspended from her role, then laid off in July alongside four other colleagues due to administrative restructuring, according to sources and an internal email provided to Van Magazine. Okay, now these conservatories are getting away with not only letting students get abused, but ruin the, ruining the careers and financial lives of people who are just trying to do the right thing. And we're continuing to let these men with power not only perpetuate white supremacist norms and programming and engaging classical music, we're letting them abuse young people and, and get grown folks in trouble out here looking for jobs because they're just trying to protect the students. Now, again, take a look at that and spread the word so that we can raise awareness. But I'll leave that there for now. Don't want to um, <laughs> mold any opinions. I want you to come to your own. So we'll get on to the <laughs> interview uh, for this week featuring Mr. Jorge Federico Osorio. So earlier this year, Jorge released an album called Conciertos Románticos. It features uh, music by Mexican composers Manuel Ponce and Ricardo Castro. 
um, who I actually hadn't heard of before checking out this album. So I'm learning here as well. Uh, it just so happens to be Hispanic Heritage Month right now. So I thought this would be a, a good so-called classical way to celebrate. Uh, Jorge has been doing some incredible work for decades now, and I'm uh, really honored to have gotten the chance to chat with him. So to get us into my conversation with him, we're going to listen to a little music uh, from this album, Conciertos Romanticos. This is the uh, finale to the Ricardo Castro Concerto that's on the album. Hope you enjoy this little bit of music and hope you enjoy my dialogue with its featured soloist. See you on the other side. I've been in this for many, many years, and um, uh, you were mentioning the the my most recent album with uh, with Sedich, the company, and uh, thanks to them, really, I mean, many of these uh, projects have been come to fruition. Before the before recording the Concierto Romanticos, we we've done other, we've recorded other Mexican composers. Uh, from uh, Carlos Chavez, also the concerto for piano and orchestra with the National Symphony, and some solo recordings as well. So, as I say, it's uh, somehow you have to be inventive in many ways <laughs> in this career. It's uh, it's uh, there's so many ways to go about it. But also, sometimes you find the right place at the right time. And that was, I think, luckily has happened to me with uh, since I started working with CD Records in, I think, it was 2003 or four that we started. Hmm. Yeah, there are so many um, types of music from Mexican composers that I've had the opportunity to engage over the years. Some sound very much like they're inspired by mariachi and those sorts of things. Other composers uh, wrote music uh, that sounded very European in nature. Yes. I, yes. I wonder, from in your opinion, why is it important to engage all of that music, even the music that really sounds European in nature? Um. First of all, I, I, the first thing I always go for is quality. Mm. I think it's beautiful music that deserves to be heard. Um, good music, it's always good music. But I mean, I think that uh, um, I know now that now the the trend is that it's been I mean very valuable to have that. I mean, no matter the color, race, or or gender, I mean, really doesn't matter. It's really the quality. I've had wonderful reactions about these uh, concertos. Uh, people who 
just heard it and they didn't know what they were listening. And they just, by the by the beauty of the music or something that uh, they found that they liked, they that was the, the first uh, gut, uh, gut feeling that they really loved it. And that's the way I I I go in man, many ways uh, for concerts when I'm playing traditional repertoire or or other kind of repertoire. I wonder if you'll talk about your um, early years as a uh, a budding uh, pianist. Uh, what were some of your early inspirations? Maybe even what brought you to the piano in the first place. Well, what brought me to the piano, it's really what brought me to the music. Hmm. Because I always loved music. Of course, there was music at at home. My mother, a a concert pianist, and she was my first piano teacher until I was 16 when I left for Europe. My father, a violinist, he played for many, many years in the university orchestra, the National Symphony. And he played under wonderful conductors. At that time, when my father was playing, people like Eric Kleiber used to come and stay for two or three months. Uh, Celi Bidake, I mean, uh, and, I mean, so many great soloists also. So there was always music. So I started playing the piano when I was about five. And actually, I started with the violin a little bit earlier. Then I was studying quite seriously, but not really, not really with the idea of becoming a, a musician myself, just for the joy of music. And I mentioned this always because uh, people ask me, "Well, when when were you enamored of the piano?" I'm saying I'm enamored of the music. Mm. <laughs> first, first of all, because I mean, I used to go very often to concerts, mostly symphonic concerts. Go uh, enjoy the the opera, the opera in Mexico. I mean, it was thrilling to go. Also, because I mean, I used to go with my father, and we had the most delicious dinners after that <laughs> <laughs> together. So. It wasn't until I was 11 or 12 that I thought that this is what I wanted to do. So, seriously. And then my mother changed my <laughs> my timetable completely because she said, well, this is what you do now. You really practice in earnest <laughs> many more hours. And, of course, I started uh, going to the... Mexican the conservatoire the Conservatorio Nacional of Music in Mexico City and studying everything properly solfege uh, harmony singing choirs uh, analysis and I was uh, uh, really blessed because I had wonderful teachers two of my teachers were both composers Rodolfo Halfter from the Halfter tradition and uh, Maestro Jimenez Mabarak, also a wonderful composer, which later later on he wrote some pieces for me. So from early early childhood, I've been quite of uh, uh, very very close to the to the Mexican music. You mentioned that your mom was your piano teacher until you moved on to Europe. What was yeah. that transition like for you? Was it easy? Was it a rough transition? Um, 
Not really, because this is something that I wanted so much. And about that time, also, I had been studying with the French teacher, Bernard Flavigny, someone who used to come every year. Um, the first year, I think it was in 1958, 59, thereabouts, and to give master classes, but really master classes, which were like almost one half, one and a half months, uh, three times a week. So. Mm. He also really was sometimes who worked with all all the pianists you, from Mexico. I think everybody went through the through the master classes with him, and uh, I consider him and my mother really my main teachers. So at that time, I wanted to to go to Europe. So I had the opportunity to go to to the Paris Conservatoire, and so it was yes, it was a change. But when you want something t- so much, I mean, you just you just do it. Mm. I I didn't, I didn't have any doubts that this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, and you've had a, a very successful career so far, doing exactly what you what you want to do. Uh, I definitely want to uh, talk a little bit about conciertos romanticos. But uh, before we do, you mentioned uh, earlier a few minutes ago that you really look at the quality of the music first. Um, with that in mind, why is it important to highlight the heritage of composers? Why was it important for you to record this album of Mexican music? Mm-hmm. Um, why? Let me just go back a little bit to take you an anecdote about uh, the Chavez Piano Concerto. Sure. As you know, I, I recorded this a few years ago. and. Uh, and also, I've, I've been able to to play it a few times, mostly in Mexico, but I also at the uh, Chicago Symphony Orchestra regular seasons. I was, uh, I mean, I was able to, and through my management, of course, to <laughs> to enth- to enthusiasm them to to present it. And um, the interesting thing about the Chavez Concerto is that I think it's a fabulous play- work. But going about uh, being convinced and and about the quality, and because as an artist to be able to perform, you have to be thoroughly convinced, I think, mm. or at least learn the role to to be able to convey quality and the ideas of the composer. I, when I was very young, I was about fourteen, fifteen. I started working on the Chavez Piano Concerto. And I thought, this, I really don't like this. And <laughs> I'll, I'll never in my life will, will play, <laughs> play it. Then you see what happens. Sometimes as a performer, you have to revisit your ideas. You, and so I started uh, studying at it again, because someone has suggested that I should play that. Uh, there's a very important um, uh, festival in Mexico, the Festival Cervantino. So they asked me to play it. And I said, well, wait, let me give me a few weeks. Let me work at it. And, you know, by that time, I saw the piece with completely different eyes. And and, uh, and I think it's a phenomenal work. And in many ways, going back now to Conciertos Románticos, I've always... Uh, enjoyed playing the Ponce Piano Concerto. And that, the, the Ponce I've played many, many times. 
in many places I played. Of course, in Mexico, I played it here at the, in Chicago at the Grand Park Festival. I played it in Europe, in London, at the Gewandhaus in Leip Leipzig, uh, Concert House in Berlin, and always with, with great success. It's a shorter work, very much in the European tradition of uh, maybe like, uh, like uh, I could have some parallels with a list piano concertos. Mm -hmm. That is like in one movement, but it's really in three, three movements. And uh, little by little, I had been getting interested in the music of uh, Ricardo Castro, and I knew about his concerto, of course. But sometimes when you're growing up, you know about these things, that really you're, you're so immersed in so many other things and trying to just learn the traditional repertoire that uh, it took me some time. But uh, as I was mentioning, sometimes works like this come at the at the right time, and of course, um, I had the interest to really not just listen to it because sometimes listening to recordings, of course, it's great and you get an idea. But I I always like to discover things from the score, hmm. and uh, so I really started working at it in earnest, and I. I really love the piece, so um, I proposed to to CD Records that why don't we put this together, and the Ponce Concierto Romantico, and together with the with the, with the Castor Concerto. I think they go beautifully. Was there any um, pressure or anything that you felt considering? That many people would be hearing these pieces for the first time directly from you. Pressure? Uh, not really. Not in that. <laughs> way. Not not in that way. I don't know. It's like uh, when you present it in a concert, and what I always try to do is that uh, present and make a recording that it sounds always alive. And uh, because sometimes if you want to be too perfect, uh, that doesn't work. It's just something boring. And it's uh, so I, I've been. For this also, you need someone that really has the enthusiasm to do it. So I've recorded previously, as I said, with uh, Carlos Miguel Prieto, the National Symphony, the mm -hmm. concerto. So when I proposed them to do both concertos with the Mineria, beautiful orchestra, and with Carlos Miguel, of course, I mean, I, I'm so delighted that uh, they, they had the enthusiasm to do it. When I talk about, about the pressures, uh, no, really, I had never thought of, about that. I just <laughs> let's, let's do something. As, as good as can be and, uh, and beautiful. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that's a that, that's a great outlook and, and way to approach it. When I uh, when I took a look at this, uh, the track listings on the album, uh, Manuel Ponce actually was one of the composers whose name I was familiar with, even though I wasn't familiar uh, with uh, the concerto. Um, is his name more familiar in Mexico, maybe than here in the United States, from your perspective? Well, yes, I think he's one of the most beloved composers in, in Mexico. And uh, 
of course, because of the friendship he had with uh, with Segovia, the guitarist. I mean, he really helped him uh, to make him a, a, a name. Uh, but I mean, he was uh, his the piano was his instrument, Ponce. And he was a very good pianist. He studied very seriously. He even went to Europe to study with Martin Krauss. Many people are familiar that he was the teacher of uh, Claudia Rauf, people like that. But I believe he also studied with the young uh, Edwin Fischer, which is very interesting. And of course, he was studying uh, composition as well in Italy. So. Definitely one of the, our main composers and beloved composers is Ponce. But uh, uh, Ricardo Castro, it's, uh, it's very interesting also because he was a really a fabulous virtuoso, really the first virtuoso, Mexican pianist virtuoso. He wrote a lot of uh, works, many for the piano, of course, but also operas, uh, ballets, and and the interesting thing also about the, his piano concerto, which he premiered in Europe, in Antwerp, in 1904, he started writing, I think, in the 1890s or in 1980s, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And it's really one of the very first uh, piano concertos written in the Americas. So historically also, I think it's uh, interesting. But as I mentioned, interesting is, is fine. Uh, but uh, for me, it's really the, the beauty of the concerto. The, the quality is very unusual for, uh, for, uh, for Castro's music. The, he chose the, the key of A minor. And even the, the way he begins the concerto, I think, is very striking, almost like operatic, as if you're really so mysterious, as if something it's you never know what's going to happen. And then has this uh, uh, crazy construction of the first movement, so unusual uh, that some things repeat, uh, come, and, come and go, but very operatic, I think, very lyrical and really very, very virtuoso. Considering the vastness of both Ponce and Castro's catalogs, are the works on this album, um, in your opinion, representative of their overall style, or are they more outliers in their catalogs? Uh, in the style of uh, Castro, yes, I think so. Because, I mean, he wrote these big works also. He has a beautiful cello concerto. But uh, he wrote a lot of uh, smaller pieces. But I mean, so that's why I decided to put them together. And then some of the works as an, like an encore piece, but also to show a contrasting way of in, in their music. Like for instance, that's why I put the, after the Castro Concerto finishes uh, to put the Perses, which is a lovely piece. I mean, so naive and very beautiful. And then the Canto de Amor, which is a very Listian in, uh, in feeling and uh, the way he uses the piano, really the piano sings and it's, it just uh, sounds naturally. And, uh, and in many ways, the same with Ponce. 
although Ponce, Ponce, he, he had this romantic and very traditional European way of uh, composing, but he always sounds, there's always something Mexican that I feel that no matter what he does, it, it always, that always uh, uh, reappears. <laughs> <laughs> But he also made a, a second trip to Europe later on in life, and he, he really changed uh, his style of composing completely. He studied for many some years in Paris with uh, Paul Ducat, and he produced some marvelous works like the Sonata Breve for violin and piano, the two etudes that he dedicated to Arthur Rubinstein, which. But, uh, at the time that he wrote it, I mean, it's interesting. It's he combines second and thirds, and then fourths and fifths. I mean, very concise, much more concise his style, but quite striking. I think well, those that, those I already recorded for CD a few a few years ago, so you can find that also there. Yeah, I was I was going to ask, how did your relationship with CD uh, begin? It began because, I mean, as you know, they they encourage and, and they, not that they encourage, it's uh, based in Chicago and it's really for Chicago-based musicians or, or Chicago-born musicians. So I was introduced uh, by him through my, through also a dear friend, uh, Henry Fogel, which I was at that time I was playing with the Chicago Symphony. I was playing Totentanz by Liszt, mm -hmm. and then I believe Jim had Jim Ginsberg, the president of City. He had heard of, of me before, but we met and then we started talking about, and uh, we started with the piano español. That was the, my first CD uh, with them, and. Uh, it went beautifully, and uh, the reviews and everything. It was really a big success, and from then on, it's uh, every time. I mean, we've done so much, so much different repertoire, traditional and also from Mexico, and then the, the Chavez Concerto, the Schubert Brahms uh, double CD, the Debussy double CD with Liszt, the French album, and of course the Salon, the, all these pieces by different composers of Salon music, Mexican, Salon Mexicano. So let's see what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Whose idea was it uh, for you to work with the orchestra in Mineria for this, for this latest album? Uh, my idea. Oh. Yes. As I was referring, you also need um, someone who would be really committed with the with the repertoire. And I had recorded with the Mineria before, but the traditional repertoire with the other conductor, Luis Herrera de la Fuente, we recorded Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, and De Falla. But uh, I think it made sense because I've been I play very often with Carlos Miguel. He's a champion also of Mexican music, and, and, and it's a beautiful orchestra. So it also helped that we were able to 
do it in two consecutive weeks. We were able to, we, we had live concerts, and then on the following day, we would go and record, and then the, next, the following week, the same. First the Ponce, and then the, the Castro. The solo pieces I recorded here with, uh, with Jim Kinsberg as producer, and Bill Malone, which always gets uh, such a wonderful sound of the piano. <laughs> When you record uh, performances, are you a performer who likes to go back and get a hundred takes of everything, or do you go right through and they get what they get? What's your approach? No, I I mentioned something like that, but that sometimes if you search and you're looking for something that sounds so perfect, note perfect, sometimes you you miss the what's what's the what the important thing is. Something that uh, should be spontaneous, direct, direct to the heart. And no, I usually, if it doesn't work that in two or three takes, then you're in trouble. And then maybe you should. It's, it's uh, luckily, I've never had to, to do more than that. And of course, when you work with an orchestra, it's even most, more restrictive because I mean, you have times. Sometimes the unions, I remember when I used to, to record in London, I mean, it's uh, quite nerve wracking sometimes because you do it, you have one or two and that's it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the two takes, but uh, no, that hasn't happened. Are there major uh, differences between working with orchestras in the United States versus orchestras in Mexico? Do they do they run similarly or differently? Well, sometimes what's different is uh, the time you get for rehearsals, mm. really. Like uh, this famous Italian pianist, they once asked him, what's the most important thing? He said, well, the preparation. So, and yes, he's absolutely right what it, what it really means. But uh, I referred that when I, wait, when I played the, the Chavez Piano Concerto with the CSO. Of course, it's a tremendous work and it's very difficult for the orchestra. But one of the most rewarding things that I, it, when I was rehearsing there with them, it's listening to some so many of the musicians really practicing their their part <laughs> you know and of course it de depends also on the repertoire and it's uh, and with the conductor and every orchestra i mean every orchestra every time every concert is different but uh, the important thing i think it's the purpose what's the purpose really to convey this as beautifully as truthfully and as with as much love and energy that that you can what are your ideas on balancing works like the chavez or ponce or castro concertos that may not be as familiar to audiences versus works like uh the Emperor Concerto of Beethoven that audience may be more familiar with. How do you how do you approach balancing these two things? Uh, that's a very good question. Balancing the thing is that sometimes there's no 
there's no space to balance <laughs> because sometimes the program dictates or some orchestras or some uh, organiza organizations they just want to present a different kind of uh, program and uh, and and uh, vice versa also i mean there, there are places where you should the, that you can suggest and maybe push a little bit more for for uh, to be these works to be heard and uh, it's possible it's just that of course people are not to, sometimes presenters i guess they would be reluctant to do it because it's not someone that they think that the public would want to won't come because they don't know the 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 works or they don't know the composers but you know i've had many many different experiences in this respect as to new publics for instance mm -hmm. i tell you if you play for a young audience in mexico they love the Chavez piano concerto. They love the Bartok concerto for the or for orchestra. Because I mean, they don't have this idea, adult idea, as to what should be heard and what should not be heard. Mm. That's what it's sometimes when they ask me about the new public or young younger public, I tell them just. Just let them go. Don't don't explain. Sometimes you have to. It's the parents that you have to to give them guidance as to just let them go and decide by themselves. I'm not saying this just like in a uh, some like like in utopia that, that it's something like it should be like this. Mm -hmm. I, I've had myself I, many many experience with publics that you for the first time they were listening to a concerto and even if you're playing the emperor or you're playing the chavez or the ponce or prokofiev i think if you presented with the if you do the utmost as an artist with total respect for the music and it is an adventure also for the new public. You know, let me tell you, once I played the, the Emperor Concerto in a, in a town in Leon, Guanajuato, in Mexico. It was like one of these uh, uh, popular concerts. It was in a church. It was absolutely full of people, all Beethoven. And I had the public very near me. But... Uh, there was this little boy that came to the piano and stood right in front of me and he didn't move the whole concerto. Wow. I was so moved by this. And you know, uh, about uh, 10 or for 10, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I mean, after that, I went back to, to a place, to a nearby town to give some master classes and a, this young uh, pianist comes to play in my master classes and he told me well you know who i am i don't know if you remember me but it was this little kid that was the first time that he heard music wow and uh, so you see you never know you who you who who and how you're gonna 
be touching with this. And doesn't matter, Mozart, Chavez, Prokofiev, uh, Bartok, uh, Villalobos, but do it with the utmost respect. I think that's that's uh, very important because they they certainly will feel it. One of the unfortunate things about classical music, at least from my perspective, is that there are so many people who just don't know that um, composers existed outside of Europe. You know, so uh, you know there there's so many composers who we haven't talked about. I'm thinking of people like uh, Revueltas. Uh, there's you know an incredible and living composer uh, Juan Pablo Contreras. You know, there's so many yeah. Mexican composers. Um, out there. Are there other big names, you know, for people who just don't know about Mexican composers? Who should they, who should they start with? Who should they explore with? Uh, well, there's um, Mexican composers. I mean, the, there's uh, Alexis Aranda. He's a young Mexican composer. He actually, I actually premiered one of the, his second piano concerto. This was a commission by the National Symphony. And I knew of his music, and uh, it's it's a fantastic piece. There's also Samuel Seaman. He's a composer also. He's been teaching in Juilliard for many years. I also recorded some his one of his pieces for CD some years ago. Uh, of course, there's Gabriela Ortiz, which has been so successful. And recently, I went to CSO. A concert where they were playing her music. So, as I say, it's uh, fortunately this uh, uh, this trend of, of encouraging people to to be a little more have more imagination and maybe help um, composers and to to be able to to so that they can hear the, their music. I think it's. It's terrific, but I go back to well. It's, it's really the quality. With your eyes closed, <laughs> for me. Well, in the it's like, a, for instance, uh, yes, it takes. Sometimes you really have to also make make an effort. But for instance, uh, I mean, I go back to CD. I mean, because I mean the the. They have so many projects, and through them, I've been able to discover also composers like Stacy Garup. Mm -hmm. More and more, it's 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 uh, tremendous the quality. Yeah. Shulamit uh, Ran and there are many others, of course. Yeah, I was actually just on a Zoom call with Stacy Garup a few days ago, so I'm glad that you know it's like a a community. <laughs> um, so for pianists who are looking to build a career like you have built, you know, recording and performing, um, what advice would you give them, especially those, you know, at the very beginnings of their careers? It's a, it's a very competitive career, of course, but somehow I believe that every, everybody has, finds their way and it's just to be committed and, and to you have to not get in, not to get discouraged. Um, this is a question that I'm often asked about, and I would tell them also that to be sometimes a little more daring, um, approach the conductors. 
sometimes go and uh, really annoy them <laughs> that you want that they need to to, to hear you or or something. I mean, uh, and you'll be surprised. Many, many I've had uh, many many good experience this way, and also I know of, of other conductors that have also been open to this. Uh, to these avenues, and uh, there's of course the competitions. There are many competitions, but I mean they can always uh, open a little door here and there, and then really little by little, it needs its uh, career. It needs patience, demands patience, and uh, demands also. But if it's really what you love to do, it uh, can be very rewarding. In many many occasions so after all of your hard work is done you're just fresh off the stage from a concerto or maybe you're taking a a day off what do you like to listen to what do you spend your free time listening to and enjoying um sometimes i just put the radio i like to be surprised <laughs> i mean i have uh, i have many of my old lps and a lot of cds i still I still that's the way I'd listen to music. But as I as I say, I, I like to go and discover it and uh, and as I mentioned, I, I like to go and read the music and discover it by by myself. I remember this was something that uh, my French teacher and my mother really encouraged me to do very much. Um, just go to the library and for instance, I remember that uh, when I was like uh, 11, 12, there was at one moment the Brahms uh, third piano sonata, the F minor, was getting very popular and everybody was playing. And then I thought, well, this is sonata number three. So there must be sonata number two and number one. So <laughs> <laughs> this, and so I, Go and discover it by yourself, and the same with the Schubert sonatas, the same with Ponce, the same with the Ponce piano concerto with his uh, with his piano solos, and the curiosity that was that would be something that I would uh, really advise young musicians to be always curious, to go and make the effort to to read to inquire, to, to, to discover. finale to the piano concerto of Señor Manuel Ponce to close us out there. Huge shout out to Jorge for joining me. Be sure to check out this album next time you're looking for some piano music from Mexico. Love highlighting the diversity of some of the more familiar aesthetics in this thing called classical music. Um, but speaking of things romanticos or romantique, I, <laughs> I wanted to uh, take a quick minute or two to share something with y'all that uh I've been thinking about this week. So I told y'all about my trip to the Buddhist colony down in Florida a few weeks back. 
Um, so my roommate down there, shout out to Jamie from Chicago, uh, he put me on to a YouTube show called For the Boys. It's a 10-parter about queer 20-somethings living in Brooklyn and facing, you know, all of the drama that 20-somethings face in this <laughs> 21st century. Uh, one of the big plot points in the show is that one of the main characters is dating a white man, yes, an interracial relationship. <laughs> and this causes schisms uh, in the friend group. Uh, and when the two actually break up, the people who felt a way about the relationship aren't there to offer any support or consolation. And um, it, it's just kind of like that. I'm, I'm thinking about this um, because I, I, I live this every day. And not only in my relationship, shout out to J uh, Dell, shout out to Jail, shout out to Dell, um, but also just in the way that, uh, you know, some people in and outside of the field engage me. First thing I'll say uh, is that my track record on being a part of the cause and a part of the struggle is quite clear. So no one can call me anti-black for dating outside of my skin tone. That's number one. Second thing is I find it so ironic that people who dedicate their careers to performing music from Europe for predominantly white audiences night after night and year after year have anything to say to me that that makes no sense at all as my thoughts and ideas around anti-racism continue to develop you know i've stopped believing in certain things and one of those things i've stopped believing in is that it's okay to tell a black person or a person of color that they're betraying their people for dating outside of their race now don't get me wrong please i'm completely here for black love and the black family. I come from a black family with parents who are still together to this day after 37 years, but it doesn't work out that way for everybody. It just doesn't. Love is hard to find. The dating field out here is ghetto. And I've <laughs> been out of it for uh, what now, six, six and a half years uh, with Dell. Um, and love is even harder to hang on to, you know, much, even if you're lucky enough to find it, I know, trust me. So as you continue to think about anti-racism and making the world better in your own way, cut the shit when it comes to hating on black people who end up with people who aren't black. The other thing that will acknowledge fully acknowledge is that the fetishization of the black or brown body is a real thing. And I understand that there are some white people out here that absolutely just fetishize the race of a person. They, they want to be with that person of color for their woke points, or they want to be with that person of color because they just, I don't know, that there, there are those problematic elements out there. That too is a thing. But if you're calling yourself a supporter of black life and you don't support the black lives that are entangled with folks who aren't of the same persuasion, you're in the way. Some of you listening right now might know somebody like this. And you know what? A few of you who's listening right now who know me personally know a musician or two who flies this hotep flag of non-acceptance of folks in relationships like mine. I want y'all to do me a favor, okay? Share this with them. Let those folks know that if they have the guts to actually engage this conversation, I'm ready to engage. But to be honest, I don't imagine that those folks have the tits to try to go toe to toe with me in dialogue. So in the meantime, I'll just sleep just fine. Right next to my man, who's half white, half Mexican. Happy Hispanic Heritage Month to him. <laughs> so thanks so much for listening in and continuing to support this uh, crazy little show of mine. And I will catch y'all again next week. Peace. Peace.